Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I'm going to invite you now to uh, turn in your Bible. Do you guys have Bibles in your pews here? Yeah, if you do, you can open them up to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to be reading chapter... Two, and I think we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, I think it might be on the screen behind me. Is it going to be? No, it's not. So you're going to have to follow along in your Bibles and read together with me God's Word from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but but each of you to the interests of others." In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, dear friends of Jesus Christ gathered here at Living Hope Christian Reformed Church, I want to talk to you this morning about everyone's favorite topic, change, right? Change. We love change, don't we? You love change, don't you? Hey, the truth of the matter is, right, is that the answer to that question is it's sometimes, right? Sometimes we love change, right? So like changing my socks on a daily basis, that is the kind of change that we all love, right? We love a fresh pair of socks. Sometimes changing things like the decor of our house, those are things that we we like to change or rearranging the furniture in our homes, Right? That, can be, that can be a fun change as well. Um, but there's deeper kind of change that's more difficult. Right, The things of our, our heart, to change those things and to change sometimes long-standing traditions that, that need changing, that's sometimes hard to change. We don't always love that kind of change. But here's one thing that, that we know as Christian people, right? that change is absolutely necessary. It's an absolutely necessary part of the Christian life. Why? Because change is actually what the gospel is all about, isn't it? How many of you know who Martin Luther is? Put up your hand if you know who Martin Luther is. What did he do in 1517? Anybody know? Yeah, nailing the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Does anybody know what the first thesis is that he he said, that he wrote on there? This is what he wrote. He said... 
When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers was to be one of repentance. Right? One of repentance. The entire life of the Christian person is to be marked by repentance. Now, what does that have to do with change? Well, it's what change is for the Christian person. The word repent in Greek is the word metanoia. It actually means to do an about face, to change our direction. Right? We're headed in the direction of sin. We change and we head in the direction of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is all about change. Our whole lives are supposed to be characterized by change as a Christian person where we face our Lord and Savior turning from our sin. But here's a question. How do we encourage change? How do we encourage change here in our church, because we know we need to do it, right? How do we encourage change in our church? How do we encourage change beyond our church, out in the world? Because our world needs a lot of changing too, doesn't it? How do we... Okay, so here's the thing, right? First off, we don't make change happen, do we? We don't make change happen. That's the job of, of God's Holy Spirit. But we do have a role to play in change as people who are change agents, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, what does Paul say? He says, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos waters it, but it's God that makes it grow. So Paul had a role, Apollos had a role, it's God that makes it actually happen, but we all have a role in change, right? So how do we encourage change? What is our role? What's the role that we want to play? I want to share with you a story now that um, Tony Campolo has told many, many times over, um, and it, it'll help us, I think, this story, to, to answer that very question. And for those of you that don't know who Tony Campolo is, he is a Christian sociologist, he's also a theologian and university professor at Eastern University in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, also a pretty amazing speaker. I've heard him, had the pleasure of hearing him speak a couple of times once where, where I heard this story that I'm going to tell you in just a second. And by the way, you need to know that this is a true story. And this happened actually in a town called Norris, uh, Norristown, Pennsylvania. Now, Norristown was, was uh, known for one thing. And um, how many of you know Riverview Hospital in, in Coquitlam? Riverview, what was Riverview Hospital in Coquitlam? It was a mental health hospital, right? Um, that's, that is what Norristown, Pennsylvania was also known for. It was the home, it was the home of a big, huge, state-run mental health hospital. At the time, it was called uh, a hospital for the psychologically deranged. Not exactly a PC term anymore, right? Uh, but we call it a mental health hospital. Now, the people of this hospital, the employees, I imagine like the, the board and... Um, and the psychologists and the psychiatrists that, that worked there, they realized somewhere along the way that if they were really going to help their people, right, they want their people to, to not really be there anymore, right? They don't want people to be living full-time as residents at this, this hospital. They want people to be able to be back in the community. And if, if people are going to be back in the community, they recognized somewhere along the way that that's Going, just going straight from the hospital to living next door to some family and working at Starbucks is not a really easy transition for most people to make, right? If that's the state that you're in. And so what they, they realized they had to do was they were going to put in 
they wanted uh, Norristown to have a bunch of these halfway houses, right? These, these kind of halfway places, these places in the middle where these people could go and they could live there and they could still get the support that they needed and the help that they needed while, you know, making their way in a way back into the community, right? Back into the community, back into society. Well, here's the thing. The people of Norristown, Pennsylvania, heard the plans that they were making at this hospital, and Norristown was, was not all that big of a town. And all, a bunch of these people, they got together in a place that was maybe a little bit larger than, than this sanctuary, like 600 of them. This was a, a town council meeting where they were going to be dealing with the hospital's proposal for these community halfway houses that were for the good of these residents, right? And that night, these people, like 600 people, got together and they were yelling and they were screaming, no way. This is not going to happen. Not in my backyard. This is a fine idea. It's a great idea. I just don't want, I don't want these people in my neighborhood. I don't want to see a bunch of crazies running around. These people were so, so mad. So here's the question. How do you change a situation like that. How do you change a situation like if you're if you're one of those hospital workers, if you're a psychiatrist or a psychologist, or you're a board member or whatever the happen, happen to be, you know that the best thing for these people that you work with, people that you've probably you've worked really hard with, some some of them you may have even grown to love and to really care for even your your time. You know that the best thing for these people is to find their way back into the community through these halfway houses. So how do you take 600 angry, motivated people and change them? For that matter, how, how do you change any situation that needs changing? Because there, like I said, there are lots and lots of things in our world that have to be changed. Aren't there? Do you agree? There are lots of things in our world that need to be changed? Yeah, there are. A number of years ago, I was at a classes meeting here in, in Abbotsford. Uh, I was actually at Gateway, at Gateway Church, and we had Dr. Sid Helema come and give us a report at that, uh, at that, that meeting. Uh, Sid Helema is the, one of the professors from U, uh, Redeemer University, and he gave us a report on a report that was written by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada called the Hemorrhaging Faith Study. Have you ever, anyone heard of this study before? Uh, it was put together over a number of years, and anyway, that study, it spells out the fact that youth and young adults are leaving the church, and not just the church in Canada, but the faith, the Christian faith, in droves. I mean, they're just leaving like crazy, staggering numbers, because, and this is what the report says, because to them, God is inexperienced in the church, right, unexperienced, rather, in the church, Parents are disengaged, and particularly disengaged from faith. Church community is stagnant, and the teachings and the beliefs of the church are restrictive. And so these young people are, are giving up, and they're leaving church. They're leaving the faith. They say that the gospel didn't work for them. Is that true? No, that's not it. We know better. It's not the gospel that's the problem. It's often, though, the way that the church has lived the gospel, has communicated the gospel. So how do we change that? 
I mean, I look at our world, and I look at, in particular, here in the lower mainland, and we live in this, this amazing place, don't we? I mean, people drive their nice cars, and we live in our increasingly expensive housing, right? Our houses that are millions of dollars for many of us now. You know, you can cruise up to Whistler on a Saturday and then kayak the Indian Arm on a Sunday. You can golf 365 days a year here. We live in this amazing place, a place that has become an idol, I think, to many, many people here, along with the wealth that you need to support a, a lifestyle like that. How do you affect change with that? How do you change that? I'm going to park all of those questions for a second, okay? Just hang on to those, those questions, and we're going to come back to them. A number of years ago, a man, his name was J.B. Phillips. He wrote a book, and it had a huge impact on Christianity. It was like 50-plus years ago. Anybody know what that book was called? It was called Your God is Too Small. How many of you heard of that? Yeah, lots of us have, probably. Now, in that book, he outlines, in that book, he outlines how, as Christians, our vision and our understanding of God has kind of been, become truncated. We put God in a box, and we've not allowed him into our entire lives. He's only kind of allowed into the religious part of, of our life. God is primarily experienced, he says, in, in human terms. He's kind of the grand old man. He's the judge. He's the gift giver, whatever. But that sort of picture, what it leads to is this truncated view of, of God, which leads to a truncated view of the gospel, Right? And it ends up turning the gospel into something that is just about your personal salvation. You being, being saved and getting to go to heaven. And what he said is we have lost this cosmic view of God as creator, of sustainer of, of, of the universe, who is all about reconciling all things to himself. Right? All of creation. In Christ, God is making all things new. That's what we believe, don't we? And, and I think that, that he got it right. J.B. Phillips got it right. The gospel that we pitch as Christian people, the God of the Bible is often, at least the way we make him out to be, is often too small. Too small. And then for a sermon title, I don't know if you guys checked that out, but for a sermon title I wrote, Following a Small God. It doesn't really seem to work, right? It doesn't jive. But here's the thing, friends. There's actually something very, very important in that that we have to talk about. Following a small God. Friends, the gospel reaches everywhere. Its impact needs to be felt everywhere. It needs to fill the, old earth, the, the, the whole earth, and, and, it, and it will. One day we know it will. But Jesus, his story is a story of a, a great big God what? He became a man. He became small. He was born in a manger. He became quite small. And friends, that's the way of Jesus, actually. The second half of the hymn that we read in, in, in Philippians 2, that's, you, did you see that part that was all kind of offset? That, that's a hymn. It was an early church hymn. This is what it says. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is a big God, is it not? 
That is a big, that's a huge God. And we're talking about following this God. But if you want to follow this God to the second half of that beautiful hymn, you've actually got to go back to the first part. You've got to go back to verses 5 to 8. I'm going to read those again for you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, big God. But the story starts out by that big God becoming very, very small. Even nothing. And I think that sounds kind of strange. It's so strange that somebody just might write, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world, to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It sounds so strange. Like, Like somebody saying, if it's springtime, try planting a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but, but this is what the kingdom of God is like. If you plant that, you are gonna get a huge tree this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's not, it's not like a, a huge lump of dough. It's like the little, little bits of yeast that go into the dough and expand. Jesus says, you want to follow me? This is what you're like. You're small because my way is small. Let's look at that for a minute. What does it mean? What does it look like to peek into the wisdom of God that seems like foolishness to the world? I want to go back to that town council meeting at Norristown. And let's just say that you are there and you're one of the people who's on the hospital board or, or you're one of the psych, and you want, to change, you want to change this situation. You want to change this town. You at least want to change the lives of the people in this hospital for the psychologically deranged. Let's say that you're not even a hospital worker. Let's say you're someone else living in this town, Okay. And you're sitting there, and these people around you, they are all raving mad about not letting this halfway house be built. So what do you do? What do you do if you're not a hospital worker, and, but that's what you want? I, I, I imagine there's a number of ways that you could affect change, couldn't you? What if you're the wealthiest guy in town or the wealthiest gal in town, right? And, and maybe you own the business that the whole town is employed by. You know, we all know small towns like that, right? That have got one major business and everybody works there in one way or another, right? If you were that person that owned that business, you could stand up and you could say, hey, everybody pipe down. These halfway houses, they need to be built. And if you don't approve this, you know what? I'm packing up my business and I'm moving to the next town over and you're all fired. Maybe a bit far-fetched, right? But you get the point. Or maybe, maybe you're a preacher. You're a preacher of a, probably a, a different kind than me or, or Pastor Steve. You know, you might, you might be able to get up in front of people and you might say, you know what, you people, I have been praying for this place. I've been praying for this place for years and years and years. 
You need to approve this. God has told me this is his will, and if you don't, if you don't pr- approve this, then look out. The fire's of hell. Right? That might be another way that you could affect some change in, in town. Or maybe that you're, you're a politician and you're a person in the political realm that knows how to, how to grease all the right wheels and line all the right pockets and you know just the kind of words that need to be said to just the right people. Maybe you even, you know, you threaten to sink some of your other peop- the other people on the town council, you know, who don't vote your way. Those are maybe three ways that we could use to affect change, to push this project through. But what would happen with the people of the halfway houses? What, what would happen with them? Would, would the people in town love them? Would the people in town want to welcome them? Probably you would have a lot of people that felt bullied into it, right? And people who aren't going to be very welcoming, people who are still going to be more than a, a little angry by the presence of, of these halfway houses in their community. I know I'm jumping around a lot. I hope you're following me. I hope you're tracking. I'm going to jump again. We're going to jump to the Gospel of Matthew for a second. I'm going to read this piece. I'm just going to sort of encapsulate this story. I want to talk to you about the, te- the story of the temptations of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. It's right near the beginning of, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. You know, Jesus comes in the Gospel of Matthew and he announces what he came to do. And what was that? He says, the kingdom of God is here or it's near. Repent. And believe the good news, right? Repent, just like Martin Luther said. It's all about repentance. Change, he says. Believe the good news. And then when Jesus does that, he starts announcing this. What happens right away? The devil comes to him at the beginning of his ministry, and he offers him a bunch of things. The devil says, Jesus, you want to change the world? You want people to repent, to come into the kingdom of God? Okay. He says, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus has been in the desert. He's hungry. He's been 40, 40 days in the desert. And the de- you know, devil says, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus says, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. And then the devil says, okay, then, you know, throw yourself down from this building. I'm going to bring you to the top of this building. Throw yourself down from this building. And you know what? The angels have to come and rescue you. That's what it says in God's word. He's, and Jesus says, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that either. And then the devil says, well, if you won't do that, then come with me to the highest peak in the land. And he says, Jesus, look out there. Once he brings them to that highest peak, it can all be yours if you bow down to me. And Jesus says, I don't think so. Do you know what's going on? This is a a historical interpretation of of that that makes a lot of sense to me. That what the devil is doing in each and every one of those instances is that he is offering Jesus power. He's offering Jesus power, a a, a quick way to change the world without relationship, without real love, without the cross, right? Bread. If you can make stones, these stones, turn into bread, what else could you do, Jesus? Well, you could feed the whole world, and then they'd be eating out of your hand. It's a temptation to, to create change by economic power. Or dazzle people with this super public miracle of you falling off the the top of the temple and the the angels coming to rescue you. You do that and you will have all of the religious power that you could possibly ever want. Bow down to me and I will make you reign over all the kingdoms of the world. Well, what is that but an invitation to political power? 
And Jesus says, no. My way is different. It's loving. It's relational. It's not economic. It's not religious power. It's not, it's not any of those things. So how did Jesus come to change the world? Well, that's what we find out in Philippians 2 again. Let's go back. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But taking the very nature of a servant, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is how Jesus changed the world. Max Weber, who's a very famous sociologist, he wrote a book some time ago where he, where he actually talked about some of this stuff. He, in that book, he distinguishes between two things. He talks about power, having the ability to sort of force change down people's throats, the power to coerce somebody. Even if you don't use it, you know, you know, they, you know that they're going to listen to you, right? That's power. And he distinguishes between that and authority. He says authority isn't, it's not like power. It's not like this top-down, muscle-made kind, kind of thing. Authority is something that people give you because they've seen in you a life of sacrificial love, a life laid down in service. Again and again and again. They listen to you not because you shove something down their throat, but because they've seen your life laid down, a life of service. I'm going to go back to Norristown for the last time. What really happened in Norristown on that day? Well, that day when there were 600 people who were so angry because this, they didn't want this halfway house to be built, what happened? There's 600 people yelling and angry out in the audience, and there's this town council, and they're all up front. They're all up front right up here. And they're just getting ready to, to pass a vote or to, to vote no. We're sorry, these, these halfway houses are not going to be built this, in Norristown. It's a bad idea. And then all of a sudden, from the back, like through those double doors right there, these double doors open, and from the back, down the middle aisle, just like this, comes this small, decrepit, little old lady, and she makes her way all the way to the front, and she turns around, and she gets down on her hands and her knees, and she lifts up her face, and it's Mother Teresa. For real. This actually happened. And Mother Teresa says, with tears in her eyes, don't you see who these people are? These are children of God. Love these people. If you don't love these people, you don't love God. Please, I beg you, let these halfway houses be built. And Mother Teresa, she spoke that day not with power, right? Mother Teresa spoke with authority. She spoke with years of service and a heart of sacrificial love that was formed and shaped on the streets of Calcutta. And what happened that day? It was so quiet you could hear a pin drop. And then a council member broke the silence and said, I make a motion that we approve this proposal for these halfway houses to be built. And no one got angry. And the halfway house approved uh, 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 project went through. 
And as people walk the streets with their kids today, I, I can imagine, you know, they see, they see a, a halfway house or they see somebody that lives in one of those halfway houses and they say, you know what, let me tell you, let me tell you a story. They say to their kids, let me tell you a story about these people. They're children of God. And you know, sometimes I don't like the fact that they're so close and sometimes they scare me a little bit, but I'm trying to love them. Will you help me? And that's what happened in Norristown. Change. Friends, when you shove something down someone's throat, it doesn't go all the way to their heart. Ever. When you speak with power, when you show power, what comes right back? You are met with power. Fists come up. When you speak with authority, when you live a life that engenders authority, when you speak out of that, that's when real change can happen. It happened in Norristown that day. Do you get it? It's not through the exertion of some great power. It's through the foolish things. It's through the small things, the weak things. It's by sacrificing, by laying down because of love, what was rightfully his, that Jesus changed and is changing our world. That's God's plan. He could have he done it through power. He didn't do it that way. It's not his way. So how do we, how do we follow that small God? How do we do this as a church? How do we do it, you know, in, in our town not by shoving things down people's throat, but by living this life of sacrificial. What does that look like? My good friends Ed and Michelle Topp in, uh, in Calgary, they're pastors in Calgary now. I know they were here in Abbotsford for a number of years as well. They asked that question with their church and in, you know, about their, their neighborhood that they live in in Calgary, Inglewood Ramsey. They started something a little different on, on Sunday mornings. One Sunday morning, I think it's every six weeks or maybe it's once a month, they started something called Mobile Feet Sunday where they pray and they worship in a very, very different way, not by coming and singing and listening to a sermon, but by being out in the community and working with social service agencies and cleaning toilets and doing all these things. Women's shelters. Their church started a music school and, and an acting school for kids that can't afford these things, and, and people just started showing up. You talk to Pastor Ed, you talk to Ed about it, and he'll tell you 40% of the people that show up there it, in, in any given week, they, they, they come in and out of the church, they don't give a rip about Jesus. So why in the world would they come? Because of what they see is going on. These lives laid down. They see sacrificial love, and I, I think people want to be close to it. They want to be a part of that. And then when they come, and they do eventually sometimes come, and they come to church, and they listen to Ed or, or Michelle go on about Jesus in, in some sermon, and, 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 and they probably go, huh, you know, like, I don't know about this Jesus thing, but, you know, these people in this church, they've been here for 19 years sacrificing. They've earned the right to speak. Maybe I'll listen. In Philippians 2, after Jesus descends, it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. I don't know what that's going to look like, but, but maybe this is what it could be like. Here's what I think. 
when Jesus comes again, and when all of the lie is stripped away from, from this world, and people see the whole story of God's world, the story of God becoming a man, becoming a baby born in, born in a manger, and, 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 and they see his life lived in sacrificial service that led him to, to death and, and death on a cross. You know, even if they don't like the story, they're going to say, who else could do that but someone who's Lord? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They might not even, they might not like the story, but they're going to know it's true. And goodness knows, Jesus has earned the right to speak. I talked about the beginning of Matthew. I'm going to talk just really briefly about the end. The beginning, we got the devil try, trying to tempt Jesus into ruling by power. At the end, this is what we hear Jesus say just before he ascends into heaven, right? So you got you know, this temptation to power, and what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Authority. Sounds maybe a bit different now, doesn't it? Where are the places that you're doing this as a community, as a church? What are the ways that you're, you're doing this as a family on your block or an individual at school or at, or, at, or at work? Where are you looking to make an impact by gaining authority by serving the people around you? Friends, it, 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 it takes time. It's easier, it's more efficient for us as individuals, as a church, to just power up and force change in what way, whatever way we can, but it doesn't change hearts. Change only happens when we follow in the way of Jesus, right? The way that he went. May we have the patience, the energy, and most of all, the deep, deep love for our world to work with Jesus in changing our world. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word to us. We're grateful for this hymn in which um, you show us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and who he was, what he did on our behalf. This life, this life of sacrificial giving, his life laid down. That's what we're going to be celebrating in just a few short weeks as we, we head towards Good Friday and the cross. And one way or another, God, we celebrate it every week, and we are, we are just so grateful for for that in our lives and for the ways that it changes our lives. And Father, we pray that you would give us a vision to be agents of change in that same way, using the small, the small things, the foolish things, the weak things of this world as we follow after Jesus Christ. Life of, in living a life of sacrificial love. Give us the patience and the energy to do that. And, and Father, most of all, the love, your love um, that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.